Hello and welcome to the podcast for the September 2009 issue of The Lancet Neurology. I'm Richard Lane and this month I'm joined by TLN editor Helen Frankish. Welcome Helen. Let's start with a very interesting looking research article. I have to admit I did have to read it two or three times to understand it before interviewing you. But basically this is uh, looking at Huntington's disease. Let's start with some context, Helen. You know, what's the background to this study and what are the priority areas uh, for research in Huntington's disease? Huntington's disease is a hereditary dominant neurodegenerative disease that typically manifests itself when patients are middle-aged. And it's caused by a mutation in the gene that encodes the Huntington protein on chromosome 4. And in normal individuals, the gene that encodes the Huntington protein contains a sequence of CAG trinucleotide repeats, which code for a series of glutamine residues in the Huntington protein. But in patients with Huntington's disease, the number of CAG repeats is abnormally high, resulting in an excess of glutamine residues in the Huntington protein and the age at which patients start to show symptoms varies among patients from about age 30 to 70 years and those who have longer CAG repeat lengths generally have an earlier onset than those with shorter repeat lengths. And in terms of the most important areas to study, um, there currently are no effective treatments to modify the course of the disease, although there are some experimental therapies undergoing testing at the moment in clinical trials. But one of the problems is that there is a lack of markers by which the progression of disease can be tracked. So in order to test the effectiveness of potential disease-modifying treatments, we need to develop sensitive and accurate biomarkers of disease to assess whether a patient is responding to treatment. So tell us about the current study, Helen, its aims, and briefly summarise the methods and, and key results. Well, because the onset of symptoms of Huntington's disease occurs in midlife, this provides an opportunity to study patients who we know will go on to develop Huntington's disease while they are still apparently healthy. And the paper that we have in this issue reports the baseline data from the TRAC HD study, which is a multinational longitudinal study that aims to identify changes that occur over time in patients who carry the CAG expansion but are still healthy, so-called pre-manifest Huntington's disease, and patients with early Huntington's disease. And the hope is that this study will enable researchers to identify which biomarkers can be used to monitor progression of the disease in future clinical trials. And just summarise for us, Helen, the, the methods and results briefly. Well, the researchers, led by Sarah Tabrizi from the Institute of Neurology in London, recruited about 360 patients from sites in North America, Europe and Australia, about a third of which had pre-manifest Huntington's disease, a third had early Huntington's disease, and a third were age and sex-matched controls. And within the cohort, patients ranged from being about 16 years away from their predicted diagnosis all the way through to patients with early Huntington's disease. And patients were assessed with a battery of tests including clinical assessments, neuroimaging and cognitive motor and neuropsychiatric measurements. And in terms of the results... 
These showed that there were differences on imaging measures, including a reduction in brain volume, thinning of the cortex, as well as abnormalities in grey and white matter in patients with pre-manifest Huntington's disease and patients with early Huntington's disease. And there was a stepwise increase in the magnitude of these abnormalities across the groups. So just to give you an example of this, in terms of brain atrophy, um, compared with controls, patients with pre-Huntington's disease with a longer predicted time to diagnosis had a reduction in brain volume of 0.8%. In those with a shorter time to diagnosis, there was a 3.8% reduction in brain volume. In patients with stage 1 Huntington's disease, there was a 6.5% reduction, and those with stage 2 Huntington's disease had an 8.5% reduction. Thanks, Helen. So... It's a very interesting study and, it, and clearly I guess the main implication is that if we can identify appropriate markers, you can identify people at the pre-manifest stage who may be beginning to have neurological degeneration without showing early stages of the disease with the implications being if the drugs were around that, that potentially they could be treated before the disorder really sets in. That's right. As you said, these findings show that uh, there are many clinical measures that differ in patients who carry the Huntington mutation and that these changes are apparent in mutation carriers many years before the onset of clinically appreciable symptoms. The ideal time to start neuroprotective drugs is the pre-manifest stage before patients start to show um, symptoms of the disease. But as I mentioned earlier, this paper reports the cross-sectional data at baseline, so it's just a snapshot at one point in time. And the patients in this study will continue to be followed up for a further two years in order to determine um, the rate of change of these biomarkers over time on a group level, but also on an individual level. And hopefully this will enable researchers to determine which biomarkers will be useful to monitor progression of disease in clinical trials. Moving on, Helen, another interesting uh, looking research article, and this concerns stroke. Obviously we know from previous discussions how important it is for the uh, rapid treatment with alteplase after ischemic stroke in that relatively short window. This research article is looking at the way in which alteplase is actually given to patients. Do you want to just elaborate and give us some background? Well, intravenous alteplase is the recommended treatment for patients who have had a stroke. But the efficacy of alteplase given intravenously is limited by poor recanalization rates. And recanalization occurs only in about half of patients who are treated with um, intravenous alteplase. An intraarterial administration of alteplase directly into the blocked artery via a catheter is thought to lead to higher recanalization rates. However, one drawback of the arterial approach is that because the catheterization procedure can be time-consuming, the time to initiation of treatment is longer than that with the intravenous approach. And to overcome this limitation, a treatment approach that combines the speed of intravenous treatment and the high recanalization rates of the intraarterial approach could be beneficial. And this strategy is currently being tested in randomized trials but the results are not likely to be available for a few years yet. And in the meantime, data from cohort studies, such as the recanalized study published in this issue of TLN, could provide useful information. Thanks, Helen. And just briefly summarise the methods and key results from this study. 
So in this paper, Pierre Amarenko and colleagues from Paris report their experience of introducing systematic combined intravenous and intraarterial treatment with additional thrombectomy if required at their centre in Paris. And from February 2002 until March 2007, all patients who presented within three hours of a stroke and had confirmed arterial occlusion were treated with intravenous alteplase. And in the second phase of the study from April 2007 until October 2008, all patients were treated with a combined approach which involved initial treatment with intravenous alteplase followed by intraarterial alteplase if there was still occlusion. And if recanalisation still didn't occur, then additional thrombectomy devices were used. And in terms of the results, these showed that about half of the patients treated intravenously achieved recanalization, whereas almost 90% of the patients that were treated with the combined approach showed recanalization. And patients who received the combined treatment also did better clinically. So early neurological improvement on the NIH stroke scale and favourable outcome on the modified ranking scale occurred in about 60% of patients treated with the combined approach compared with about 40% of patients who were treated intravenously, although these differences didn't uh, reach statistical significance. And importantly, the mortality rate at 90 days and the rates of intracranial hemorrhage were similar in both groups. What are the main messages, if you like, to uh, clinicians and patients? It's too early, presumably in the absence of randomised trials, to draw firm conclusions at this stage. Exactly, you're right. It's not a randomised trial. But the results of this study do suggest that a combined intravenous endovascular approach could be beneficial in stroke patients who have confirmed arterial occlusion. And we await with interest the results of randomised controlled trials in which these two approaches are compared. Thanks very much, Helen. And just briefly walk us through some of the other highlights from the September issue. Okay, we also have reviews this month on emerging concepts in neural stem cell research, on focal cortical dysplasia, on treatment of hyperkinetic movement disorders, and finally, a review on central post-stroke pain. Terrific stuff. Helen, many thanks for that, and many thanks to you all for listening. We'll see you next month.